Welcome to the Catholic Foodie Show. I'm Jeff Young, your host, the Catholic Foodie, and I am so glad that you are here with me today. This is uh, the Catholic Foodie Show where food meets faith. Uh, you can find more uh, culinary, Catholic, I like to call it Catholic culinary inspiration to help you grow in faith around the table uh, at catholicfoodie.com. And, uh, and thank you again for listening to the show. And we'll be talking about uh, a number of different things today. I'm kind of trying to learn my lesson. You see, the last couple of uh, shows this week, I, I went on in the uh, the intro here and talked on and on about what you're going to be listening to in the show. And guess what? Both days I ran out of time. <laughs> I just started talking, you know, and uh, sharing things with you and never got around to covering everything I wanted to cover, which I guess, hey, that's not really a problem since this show is uh, a daily show. You, you can hear it right here. Redbox Media, one o'clock Eastern time, uh, Monday through Friday. So one o'clock Eastern time, Monday through Friday. Of course, the podcast episodes, the, the, uh, the archived audio, the podcast is available, uh, after broadcast, uh, daily, you can find it over at catholicfoodie.com. It's available on iTunes, uh, any of your, your, your favorite pod catcher, whatever it may be. Uh, you can find it there. Podbean, uh, catholicfoodie.podbean.com is another place you can find it. Uh, you can find it archived over also at breadboxmedia.com. So there's always a way to find the show. If you can't catch it at one, no worries. It's still available. It's available online. Now, I do want to start the show off today by talking about king cake. You know, we talked about this on a couple of shows last week. I gave you my, my recipe for king cake last week, and uh, it's a big deal down here in New Orleans now. It is a big deal. I think I made a comment that it's about half a million king cakes are made each year in the sea in the city of New Orleans during carnival season, uh, which starts January sixth, which is King's Day, uh, the the feast of the Epiphany, and goes through uh, Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras, as it is known. And uh, that's a lot of business. That's a lot of business. That's a lot of cake. <laughs> that's why uh, people down in New Orleans, they'll, they'll start their diets on January 1st. They diet for a week and then king cake season starts and uh, they don't start up again until, you know, Ash Wednesday. Oh, well. And hey, this year it's a short carnival season. Ash Wednesday is early in February this year. It's kind of unusual, but it happens. It, it comes around, you know. Uh, anyway, you know what? I have not yet made a king cake. I wanted to tell you that. it's. I don't know what's going on. We, we have not yet had a king cake here in the young household. I, I, I don't know what's happening. Well, I do know what's happening. I know what's happening is that life is busy. You know, we, uh, this happens as your kids get older too. You know, they get involved in different activities. They have commitments, things that they do outside the house. And when our kids were younger, we didn't have this problem. You know, we would cook at home together and, and it was no big deal. But today it seems like it's more difficult to do. Uh, my girls are involved in a lot of different things. They do gymnastics, uh, takes up a lot of time, but they also babysit and they also uh, do youth group. And, you know, so it's just one thing after another. My, my son uh, works on the weekends. Uh, he's in school. He's in Boy Scouts, uh, involved in, in other things. He's, he's in, uh, he loves to act. So he's involved in a play. He's doing play practice now. And so they just go in different directions, you know, and we just have not had the opportunity to make a king cake here at 
home. And I thought about that. It's almost like a, you know, what's going on? It's almost like a sacrilege. You know, well, we haven't done it yet. Well, why, we, why haven't we made one yet? But it's because of the busyness of life. Now, that's just me talking about having not yet made a king cake. That does not mean that I have not yet eaten king cake. As a matter of fact, I have had the opportunity to have a piece, a slice of three different king cakes in the last week. (laughs) So I can't say that I'm deprived here, right? I can't say that I am deprived and I haven't gotten the baby yet. I haven't gotten the baby, so I haven't had to provide one yet. So that's, that's good too. Now what I'm going to try to do, and I, I, I have been kind of stockpiling my ingredients, trying to get them all in order, making sure I've got what I need for that just the right moment, you know, when I have the time to sit down and to make one. I've got it planned out too, folks. I'm telling you, I got it planned out. I'm not making just one king cake. I'm making two at a time, right? It's kind of like when I bake chickens. You know, if I'm going to roast a chicken at home, I'm not just going to roast one. I'm going to roast two. Why? If you're going to go through all the time and effort to, to actually roast a chicken, I might as well roast two. And that way we have, uh, we can cover more than one meal. And uh, that's something I'd like to advocate, especially for busy families. A lot of times you go in, you you set the time aside to cook in the kitchen. Don't just cook for one meal in the same amount of time, maybe a little bit more, but about the same amount of time, you can cook enough for two or even three meals. And so that's what I'm going to do with this king cake. I I really do want to bring one to my office. I haven't told them yet. And they probably don't listen to this show. So, you know, they don't, it's a secret. It's a secret. You're not going to tell them, right? It's it's a secret. Uh, So I'm probably going to make one to bring to the office and then one here for us at home. I think it was, maybe it was last year or two years ago. I can't, I can't remember now, but one year, the entire carnival season, I think I only made two king cakes, one at the very beginning and one at the very end. I was so bummed out. It's like, you know, this is the only time of the, the year that we can make king cakes. And, and, I, and I missed the opportunity. Again, I think I was, that must have been when I was writing the cookbook. I just had so much going on and I, I, I just didn't have the time to, I was in the kitchen so much you know, for other stuff that when it came time to making the king cake, I was kind of like, oh, really? <laughs> and that happens sometimes too, right? You, you may feel that way from time to time about cooking. Like, really? Do I have to? Do I really have to? But that's okay. You know, I love to cook. I think that's a, a, a beautiful thing. Matter of fact, you know, I have had from time to time, I have had people tell me, well, you know, Jeff, you know, you, you love to cook. You talk about it. You write about it. You've got a radio show, you know, or actually you're on other radio shows too. You, you talk about food and faith. Why don't you cook? Why don't you open a restaurant? Or, or, or you know, I love food trucks too. And say, well, why don't you open a food truck? And here's the deal. My fear about that is that if I turn the thing that I love to do, that the thing that I really do find relaxing, you know, like for me to go in the kitchen and cook, it's like some people like to go garden, you know, it's, it's kind of like therapy. It's, it, it's relaxing. If I turn that into my work, all of a sudden I might not like to cook as much as, as I used to. You know what I mean? If you turn it into work. So I don't know. I had a conversation a few months ago. You may have heard this show with Chef Amy Sins uh, in New Orleans. Uh, she has a, a restaurant there and uh, just loves what she does. Absolutely. Lo- can't wait to get up in the morning. 
to go into the restaurant and work and cook. And, and that's, um, not all chefs are like that. Not all chefs are like that. For some of them, I mean, it's a, it's a hard life having a restaurant. And we're going to talk about that. Actually, I'm glad that I brought, I'm glad that I brought that up. You know, I'm, I'm really kind of glad that I brought that up. Why? Because I have a Facebook friend. And again, I've got to find this with all my open tabs here. I have a Facebook friend, someone who um, has been a longtime listener. Matter of fact, this was the first time that uh, we've had a, a conversation, a little message, a little chat here. Uh, Kay Butner uh, wrote to me last week and she said, Jeff, I've been a distant podcast listener for about a year and I really enjoy your show and your Facebook post of your beautiful family, especially that newest little Southern Belle, Zelly. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for that. She says, Jeff, I have a special favor to ask. You know, our daughter and her husband, both celebrated high end chefs in Madison, Wisconsin are looking for a buyer or an investor for their lovely restaurant on the nationally known marketplace square in downtown Madison. I was hoping if you could spare a moment, would you please read the article that I will be sending? And, um, yeah, you know, I know that you have a lot of a lot of acquaintances and, and people that you know and friends in the restaurant business who may be looking for a lovely place to locate uh, or or something to invest in. So it's a long shot, but you never know what or who the Holy Spirit might bring onto one's path, which is very very true. So God bless you and thank you in advance for whatever help or suggestion you may have. Your Midwest listener Kay. Well, Kay, thank you so much for uh, writing to me. First of all, and secondly, I did read that article, and this is what I'm going to do. I, I actually am sharing this uh, personally with uh, some chefs and and some restaurateurs that I know. Uh, but I also wanted to mention it here on the show because, as you said, you never know. Uh, what the Holy Spirit has in store, right? You never know. And I wanted to bring this up because, uh, and I want to share with you a few things in this this article. I'm going to put a link, of course, as I always do in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com so that you can check this out yourself if you're interested, if you need to get more information. But basically the name of the restaurant is Nostrano. Nostrano. It's, a, it's an Italian restaurant. And um, it's Tim and Elizabeth. Those are the two. It's a husband and wife team. They're celebrating award-winning chefs. And uh, there's an article. This article was written by Kathy uh, Broizina. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sorry, Kathy, if I mispronounce it. But uh, she interviews them. And in the very beginning, here's a quote. It says, I want Tim to have a break. Rest and sleep, Elizabeth says of her husband, fellow chef, restaurant partner of five years and father of her three children. He's the other half of her life and she is his. Together, she says, uh, we are a creative pair. And uh, the, the problem is that they don't have the, the, the ability to delegate to people. And, and this couple is, is running this restaurant and it is a lot of work. I'm here to tell you, I have worked in the restaurant industry in the past. Don't, don't tell anybody this, another secret from my past, but I was, I was a bartender. I bartended for about five years of my life and uh, I absolutely loved it. By the way, I, I had a lot of fun, uh, met a lot of great people and, and really enjoyed the actual craft of bartending. Uh, but it's a hard life. And, uh, you know, it's something I wouldn't want to go back to today. I'd love to be able to go into a restaurant just for fun, like on the weekend, just if I had a couple hours just to go in. My friends maybe have a restaurant and I'll go in and just help them for a couple hours. 
That'd be great. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. But I don't want to own and run one. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, when we come back from the break, we do have to take a break. You're listening to the Catholic Foodie Show here on Breadbox Media. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Catholic Foodie Show. I am your host, Jeff Young, the Catholic Foodie. So glad that you are here with me today. We're talking right now about this Italian restaurant in Madison, Wisconsin called Nostrano or Nostrano. If you're Italian, I guess it would be something like that. And uh, the Tim and Elizabeth, the husband and wife, a chef team who own and run this restaurant. Uh, they are looking for investors or perhaps someone who would want to buy uh, the restaurant. Uh, it's Tim and Elizabeth Dahl. That is uh, their names. And uh, the restaurant is uh, really, it's, it's apparently pretty famous. You know, I've never been there. I'm down here in New Orleans. They're up there in Wisconsin. But, you know, the couple are chefs and they are uh, well-decorated chefs. You know, Elizabeth is a James Beard award-nominated pastry chef and Tim, a Midwest contender in food and wine's 2015, The People's Best New Chef. Uh, and, and basically what they're saying is they need someone to come in and to invest in this restaurant or perhaps purchase it. Uh, what they need is some financial backing to hire the staff that they need for the front of the house, general manager, public relations professional, an accountant, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, uh, let's see, what does it say? It says uh, they will be forced to continue. If they can't do this, they'll be forced to continue fulfilling these positions themselves along with food and cocktail development. And with their children, ages six, four, and one, waiting for them at home, this model simply doesn't work. And, uh, you know, that, it, it, it is true. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes uh, in case you want more information about uh, Nostrano and, wh and what they're looking for. Uh, and perhaps you either could help uh, or maybe have some ideas or suggestions or, or maybe even a contact, you know, someone that you can put them in contact with. Uh, and, and it's tough. It is tough. I have a, uh, some friends of mine who own a restaurant here in town, uh, Keith and Neely Friends. They own Lola. They also have, for what was for a long time, the only food truck on the North Shore here, the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain, right across the, the lake uh, from New Orleans. They had the only food truck on the North Shore for a long time. Now there's a second food truck, uh, Coffee Rainy. is another restaurant restaurant. Um, here in town, they, they now have a food truck as well. I don't know what they have it for. Like, I don't know if they, uh, if they're not like traveling around the city and just setting up shop, serving lunch every day, that, that doesn't happen. It's more for events. You know, they would, they would be able to serve food for events, block parties, Covington, Louisiana, very, very small town, USA. It really is. And it will have block parties once a month. They have art festivals here, all kind of stuff. And, and big, big, big farmer's market on every, you know, every Saturday, Saturday mornings. And so a lot of times you'll see See Keith and Neely with that food truck, Lola De, De is French for two, Lola De uh, out there serving some of their famous, famous foods uh, at, right there out of the truck. My son is a um, 
uh, a busboy. He works at Lola right now. But Keith and Neely, married chefs, they met each other working at Brennan's, a famous, famous restaurant in New Orleans. And of course, Katrina uh, really impacted their lives. They were down on the South Shore at the time in New Orleans, and uh, Katrina forced them to, to relocate, to move. They came here uh, into Covington and eventually opened up Lola. And it's been, I think, in uh, this, this the second location that it's uh, been in and they just do they're, they're doing very very well Lola is doing a fantastic fantastic job and uh, they are well decorated chefs Neely has been on uh, Chopped and, uh, and did very very well on Chopped um, and what else I know that they were king and queen of Louisiana seafood I think last year the year before last another very big uh, big deal but they're the first to tell you restaurant life is hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. And, uh, they have, uh, uh, uh two little kids and, and, you know, got to take care of that. And so a lot of times you know, they do have, th- thankfully they do have the staff that they need. They've got people in front of the house. They've got, uh, help in the kitchen. And, and so they're able to do what they do and to, to make it work, but it's not easy. Not easy. So again, a link will be in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com so you can learn a little bit more about this husband and wife chef team up in Madison, Wisconsin, looking for a little help to keep their restaurant going. Nostrano. All right. That's awesome. So Kay, thank you again for bringing that to my attention and thank you for your kind words on Facebook. I'm so glad to have you as a listener of the Catholic Foodie Show. Um, you know, and, and again, I was saying earlier, it's like, I, I don't know if I want to turn my, the thing I love to do just to relax, you know, I don't know if I want to turn that into something that, uh, I'd have to do to, you know, every day, every day. I have uh, a, a few, uh, events coming up where, uh, actually the events have already t- taken place where, uh, they have like silent auctions, that kind of a deal to, su- you know, to support, uh, nonprofit and, and ministries and things of that nature. And I have offered my services as a, as a cook to, to prepare a meal for like 10. Uh, that would be something that would go uh, for auction, for bid, as a way for that, that organization to be able to make money. And so I do have a couple of those coming up where I'm, I'm going to have to cook, but that, that's different. That's not cooking every day. That's not, you know, it's for like 10 people. And, you know, that's fun. I, I can do that. That's, that's enjoyable. That's kind of relaxing for me too. But uh going into a restaurant every day to cook. Eh, I don't know. It's kind of, it's, it's more fun and enjoyable here to, to talk to you. And, and really that's the whole point behind the Catholic foodie, right? It's, it's not to, uh, train people to go into restaurant business. The, the real purpose is to inspire and encourage people to get back in the kitchen and to cook at home, to cook real food and to enjoy that food around the table with their families and with their friends and with people from their parish and with people from other churches and with people that they don't even know. (laughs) You know, your neighbors perhaps that you've never met before, but you can invite them over, bring them around the table and uh, and really get to know them, you know, and to be Jesus, to be Jesus uh, to people right there around the table. And there's more that we'll be talking about as far as hospitality goes uh, in the coming months as we uh, go through this this special year, this year of mercy. Now, I wanted to share with you uh, an article that I came across uh, just, uh, I think it was yesterday, two days ago, perhaps, uh, on one of my favorite food 
websites. Uh, it's, it's a food website, but it's more than a food website. It's food and faith. Um, it's really about um, grace, God's grace, and and the gift of hot, the gift and grace of hospitality. Um, I'm trying to find it. You know me, the man of many tabs. I am uh, going to try to find this real quick. If I could pull it up. Uh, gracetable.org. Gracetable.org is the website. I have had Chris Camille. Chris uh, is, I, I, I guess, the the instigator behind this conspiracy of starting Grace Table. And uh, we've had her on the show. I've had her on the show here a couple of times. Uh, very, very inspiring. Uh, I love what they're doing at Grace Table. She has... Uh, um, She's offered, she she's, has mentioned to me before, she's extended the invitation that, you know, if I would like to publish an article there at Grace Table, that I'd be more than welcome. And Chris, if you're listening, I would love to, if I can only get myself organized. <laughs> if I can figure out a way to get somewhat, somewhat organized, I would love to. <laughs> so I haven't forgotten about it. I just need to get organized to some degree. But anyway, this was a really awesome article and it was not by Chris. Chris does uh, contribute uh, articles there, of course, at gracetable.org, but this was by Christy uh, Purifoy. And I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Christy wrote uh, Tea and Toast, Why We Love to Read About Food. And I'm going to talk to you about this article and share a little bit from it um, over the next couple of minutes. And then probably resume when we come back from the next break. You know, I talk a lot about how food is just so important. It plays such an incredible role in our lives. And we, we kind of forget that. I think we overlook it. We take it for granted today because, um, well, we live in a culture and a society that is so affluent and we're so busy. We're so busy. We don't have time to recollect and to think and to really just kind of be at peace and, and to observe and to see some of the, the, the finer details of our lives. And it's really a shame. You know, we really need to try to get back to that. I know in my own life, I, I strive to take a break, to take a pause, to really stop and to, to just be present, you know, and to try to not miss some of these finer details in our lives. And if you look in salvation history, if you look in the Bible, you can see from Genesis to Revelation that food is important. Food plays a huge role in salvation history. Whether we're talking about covenant meals, I mean, just the whole way that God made us, you know, God made us in such a way that we have to eat. And in eating isn't just as simple. Well, unfortunately today, that's part of the problem. We've made it too simple, right? You can go get fast food. You eat in your car. You can eat while you work. You can eat while you're doing, you're, you can eat while you're exercising if you want to, you know, on your treadmill. Uh, we've made it too easy, but historically it hasn't been. Historically, it takes a lot of time to prepare food. And that's what we see, you know, before the dawn of electricity and the industrial age, what did we see? That the majority of the day was spent either gathering or preparing food. And that food was not eaten by yourself. It was part of a meal and food was shared. It was a shared meal. And when we have, when we live from that 
reality, then we understand, we can see what scripture is saying about the importance of food, the importance of meals, and what it says about who we are as people, who we are as human beings, and the importance of relationships, the importance of family, the importance of covenant, right? We get to see all of that. We have a proper understanding of where food belongs. You know, food belongs really within the context of a meal. So we are going to talk a little bit more about this and I want to dive into this article. It's so awesome. We're going to do that when we come back from the break. You are listening to The Catholic Foodie Show right here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Jeff Young, The Catholic Foodie, and we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to The Catholic Foodie Show. I am Jeff Young, your host of The Catholic Foodie, and I'm so excited. I'm so glad that you are here with me today, and I'm excited about what we're going to talk about this segment. We're going to be talking about an article uh, that I mentioned to you before the break. It's over at gracetable.org. I'm going to uh, put a link in the show notes, of course, at catholicfoodie.com, so you can find it very easily. And uh, this article, written by Christy Purifoy, uh, is called T and toast, why we love to read about food. Tea and toast, why we love to read about food. I love this. This is what she writes. She says, some of my favorite memories of life around the table involve foods I've never eaten and gatherings I've never attended. Only murmur the words sardines on toast and I will sigh with pleasure. I have never tasted that precise combination, but many times I have sat by the fire with Lucy and Mr. Tumnus warming my hands with a teacup and listening to the sleepy singing of his flute. I have never made maple syrup candy, though once in a gift shop in Vermont, I purchased a bit of crumbly sugar pressed into the form of a maple leaf. I have read Little House in the Big Woods so many times that I'm almost convinced I have stood with Laura holding out a plate filled with fresh snow. Were you also there near the big wood burning stove when grandma drizzled our snow with hot maple syrup? The gift of good food shared in community is such a powerful experience that we not only live it around the communion table within our, uh, with our church or the Thanksgiving table with our family, but we also read about it. I drink deep bowls of cafe au lait with Inspector Gamache in the series by Louise Penny. I eat not one but three pieces of pie with Almanzo Wilder in Farmer Boy. And I discover the charms of even a slightly dried out Kingery in Rosamund Pilcher's Winter Solstice. Bookish feasts are almost as tasty as the real thing. Occasionally, they are more so, reminding us as we read of the significance of foods to which we give little thought when we eat them. This morning I ate buttered toast with my scrambled eggs, but it is only when Mr. Tumnus serves toast three ways, toast with sardines, buttered toast, and toast with honey, that I consider what a pleasure this humble daily food can be. She writes, my own book will arrive in stores in just a few days. It's called Roots and Sky, A Journey Home in four seasons, and it is the story of our first 12 months in an old farmhouse called Maplehurst. In it, I ask just how much heaven we get to experience here on earth, and the answer, it turns out, has a great deal to do with food. 
Food is a gift from the King of heaven made available to us on earth. We receive that gift in God's name. We cultivate it for his glory. We share it with our neighbors. It's all, it is all as ordinary as toast. It is all as magical as Narnia. It is one answer to the oldest Christian prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. As I wrote Roots in Sky, I tasted again October's apple butter and December's chai tea. Through memory and language, I recall the flavors of June strawberries from the Amish farm stand down the road and the sugar snap peas from our first garden. I realized that the hospitality we had envisioned when we first arrived at Maplehurst could be so much larger than the crowd we hosted at Thanksgiving for a local Lancaster County turkey or even the hundred-odd neighbors who joined us that first spring to hunt for candy-filled eggs. When we write and read and share stories of food and hospitality, as we do in good books and here at Grace Table, we set a table so large no farmhouse could ever hold it, no matter how spacious. If some stories make us hungry, it is good to remember that they also feed us. Most importantly, they remind us that every loaf of bread is a message and a miracle, and even buttered toast can be an invitation to receive life and to receive it to the full. In the winter section of Roots and Sky, I describe my love for homemade chai tea. It is the drink I am most glad to have in my teacup while I read. My version is based on a recipe from Simply Recipes. And then she here gives the recipe for homemade chai tea. I'll tell you the ingredients. It's uh, a half of a star anise star, uh, 10 whole cloves, 10 whole allspice, two short cinnamon sticks, six whole white peppercorns, one eighth teaspoon ground cardamom. Uh, You can use a whole pod cracked open if you can find them. And, uh, Um, I love cardamom. Mm. One cup of water, four cups of whole milk, and two generous tablespoons of loose leaf Ceylon tea. Our English breakfast makes a good uh, substitute. And then honey. Pretty simple to make. In a medium saucepan, add spices to one cup of water, bring it to a boil, remove from heat, and let steep for about 15 minutes. Then add milk to the spice mixture, return to, uh, to heat just to a boil, and then remove it from heat. And then uh, add tea to the milk and let steep for about 10 minutes. Strain into a teapot, add, add uh, honey to taste. Not a complicated recipe at all. And uh, she shares it right there. Gracetable.org is the website. I will put a link in the ho note, uh, in the ho notes, in the, in the host notes, <laughs> in the show notes, in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. See, sometimes my brain just goes faster than, uh, than my mouth. Uh, so that, that is an excellent article. I love this. I love the, uh, 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 the thoughts behind it, right? The fact that we're called, we really are called to hospitality. We're called to love in this year of mercy. One of the things I want to focus on is this call to hospitality. I mentioned in the show, uh, a couple days ago, Monday's show, uh, an article by Elizabeth Foss, and it was about uh, being merciful to yourself. You may have heard that. If not, it is available over at catholicfoodie.com. Well, uh, I, I also had talked about, uh, an article that Elizabeth had written another one back in uh, November, and it was all about hospitality. 
and that call to be open. And we are called to be open. We're called to love. And how some of us, we allow fear, we allow shame, we allow, um, I guess, fear and anxiety can kind of go together. We, we allow our ideals to get in the way of really opening ourselves up, opening our hearts up, opening up our homes uh, to others. And, and we, you know, I've, I've talked to Elizabeth, we, she is going to come on the show. We are going to talk about this because I think it's, it's a great message, especially in the year of mercy, the whole thing about opening up our hearts to other people. And how do we do that? A lot of times it can simply be by opening up our homes, inviting people over, uh, making that real personal connection with people. And uh, something that I know that my wife and I have talked about, and we certainly want to do. Now, you know, in this article I just read to you, um, tea and toast, why we love to read about food, it really got me thinking too about other, not just books, but movies that have food. I remember at one point wanting to smoke a pipe. I wanted to smoke a pipe so badly. It's when I was in college. And I remember going to a store specifically with some friends to purchase a pipe so that we could smoke a pipe. (laughs) And guess what was the inspiration behind that? Reading the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. That, that was the inspiration. I had read The Hobbit when I was in high school and The Lord of the Rings and then read it again when I was in college and I had other friends who were reading it too at the time and we just loved it. It was just something about it. And so we wanted to, I don't know, experience it, you know? And so we got pipes and we sat around and sipped on a beer or wine and smoked a pipe and thought that we were just cool and intelligent <laughs> and elvish or hobbit-ish or dwarvish or something. You know, it was it was awesome. It was a good experience. And it also got me thinking, too, about other things. You know, I mentioned Julie and Julia, the movie yesterday. Uh, my wife and, and kids and I, we, we watched that again on Sunday night. And the movie... Um, I mean, there's a lot that I like about it, very lighthearted, but there's just so many little scenes from that movie and little, little quotes from the movie that just got me thinking again about why I love to cook, you know, why I love, you know, what food does to people and, and how it really can bring people together. And then it got me thinking about something else. And, uh, you might recognize this. Let's see. One of the shows that I loved, just absolutely loved, was Nero Wolf. When it was coming on, it was the seasons from 2001 to 2002, I believe. And uh, it was with uh, Maury, uh, Maury Chalkin, I believe, uh, played uh, Nero Wolf. And uh, who played Archie Goodwin? I, I can't remember his name right now, but... You know, I love that show so much, and it's based on the novels by Rex Stout. And first of all, I have to tell you that I absolutely love murder mysteries. Murder mysteries, right? Murder mysteries. Not murder, but murder mysteries. And and it's just, I love them. I love to read them. I love to watch them on TV. And um, this particular show, Rex Stout is the writer. He wrote these novels, these murder mysteries with this detective, this very large, rotund, and eccentric detective. And uh, uh, Nero Wolf, uh, who lived in New York, and a lot of of things that could be said about that. 
a lot of little details, but there are just so many things. There's so many quotes that I remember from those shows about him, whether it's him drinking his beer or being so particular, the fact that, you know, he went on and on and gave this little monologue about how to do the perfect scrambled eggs, right? You got to whisk the eggs for 45 minutes (laughs) or 40 minutes. I think it was 40 minutes, you know, and, uh, just a lot of fun, a lot of fun. What I wanted to tell you that I just came across, uh, a book that's out there apparently was first written in 1972, I think. And it is a cookbook with like 200 and something recipes based on the stories that Reg Stout wrote. He actually uh, contributed to this cookbook. This was before he died. I- I'm going to purchase that cookbook and and cook from it and see, see how that is. That'll be kind of interesting. I'll have to share that with you. Uh, we do have to take a break, so please do stay tuned. You're listening to The Catholic Foodie Show here on Breadbox Media. I'm Jeff Young, your host of Catholic Foodie. We'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Catholic Foodie Show. I'm Jeff Young, your host of the Catholic Foodie. So glad that you're here today. We are talking this segment. We're going to talk about something I think that's that's uh, very important. Uh, there's an article that came out on Alatea, alatea.org. Uh, I guess it was a, a week or two ago. Very important, especially uh, in the lives that we live today. You know, a lot of us, we live kind of like two lives in a way, you know, we're, we're on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and um, Instagram and, and all these different uh, social platforms. And we also like, you know, live in the real world, you know, real world. I guess. And uh, sometimes we can forget that we're talking when we're on the social media channels. We can forget sometimes that we're really interacting with real people, real people. I had a a great conversation about this uh, over the weekend uh, with some friends. And it's just so sad to see how some people treat other people online. You know, I have a theory about this, you know, it's very easy when you have this, this medium that you're operating through, this medium, this interface, this, this screen, it's very easy to dehumanize the other person. And, and to be quite honest, I think that, I think that's one of the reasons why we have road rage the way we have it too. There's something about getting into that car and you're kind of walled off from the rest of the world from the rest of humanity. It's almost as if your your car is an extension of your home, your personal private space. And even though you can see people through the windows and they can see you, it's really as if it doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. You know, you can become, in a sense, we it becomes very impersonal and it's very easy to dehumanize other people. Someone cuts in front of you and you all of a sudden start to think that they did it on purpose, Right. They did it on, obviously they did it on purpose because, because it's you (laughs) and you start getting angry and you got to like lash back somehow, or I don't know. I mean, we have these these problems. I mean, road rage is real. You know, people struggle with it. And, uh, fact is, I think it's just indicative of our, our fast paced lifestyles. And it's indicative of the fact that we are, um, separated from reality. Yeah. We get separated, I think, through, the screens. We get separated through the windshield. And it may sound kind of funny, kind of odd, kind of weird to say that, but it really is. It's like you become a different person when you get behind the wheel of a car. 
but Simka Fisher, who is no stranger to Breadbox Media, Simka Fisher uh, had an article that, that was posted. It was uh, published on um, Alatea, Alatea.org, the website there, a Catholic website, uh, news site, uh, on December 31st. This was New Year's Eve. And it says, when someone is wrong on the internet. And that's the title of the article. When someone is wrong on the internet. And, and it, you know, it, it caught my attention because I understand it's like, sometimes we feel like we can't even make a mistake. You know, even, even me as the, the, you're talking about something as simple as food and, and faith. I mean, faith too, but food and faith that I can't make a mistake because of what people are going to do to me or think about me if I do make a mistake. And sometimes we just, we make mistakes. We're human. We make mistakes, you know? And because I make a mistake doesn't mean, you know, if I forget a particular reference to something theologically or in, in scripture, um, it doesn't make me a, a heretic, you know? It's just the fact that I simply forgot and that happens. I think I was, I was re-listening to a show that, a, a part of a show that I did the other day and I was talking about, uh, something about Jesus 2000 years ago. And guess what I said? I said his birth two years ago, right? Our salvation. I'm not talking about just our salvation two years ago. I'm talking about our salvation today. Well, that's what I said. What I, what I meant to say was, I'm not talking about our salvation. You know, Jesus came to save us 2000 years ago. I'm talking about how we experience that today. Now, in the course of our of my my, my monologue here of, of talking on the radio, I, I misspoke, but it was a mistake. And I think most people listening to it within context would understand I was talking about 2,000 years ago, not two years ago. That's just one simple example. Well, Simka here, who is a fantastic writer, I love what everything that Simka puts out is just fantastic. She says, <clears throat> she says, sometimes I behave badly online. No, really, she says. Still, I am better than I used to be. And as I always tell my kids, you can't ask for more than progress. <laughs> Here are a few things that help me from behaving too shamefully when discussing important topics, especially religious ones online. So I want to share just these, just a handful or so of, of uh, one-liners, right? Little things to keep in mind, topics to think about when we are engaging with people online, because that's, you know, we, we tend to live our lives online today. The first one is remember that there's a person on the other end. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. It's so easy to dehumanize people, to make it impersonal, but it's good to remember that there's a person on the other end. She writes, when things get intense, I sometimes mention something personal to bring the conversation back to a human level. Instead of, I've wasted enough time with you, thickhead, you know, uh, try, gotta go throw the meatloaf in the oven now. Someone else is likely to say, hey, we're having meatloaf too. And then suddenly everybody remembers that if we're sitting around the kitchen and smelling meatloaf cooking, we wouldn't be talking to each other so nastily, even if that person really does have a thick head. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so that's good. It's to, to, to throw in some personal details there kind of helps to bring the conversation back. Another suggestion, she says, is be gentle for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. You know, you've arrived at your point of view through pure intellect, but they've arrived through theirs or at theirs through pure malice or stupidity, right? We, we tend to have that kind of thought. 
Like, oh yeah, I'm so smart. I thought it all through, but all these people are morons. Well, no, that's really not the case. Uh, She says, people who disagree with you are using their brains, but also their experience, which may have been nothing like yours. Uh, We are all kind of a mess inside and uh, won't see ourselves or anyone else clearly until the second coming. Remember that there is no point of view in a vacuum. We all have baggage. And when someone disagrees with you, it may have a lot more to do with that baggage than it does with your idea or with you personally. And I saw this as a teacher, you know, teaching high school boys. I taught all boys. And I remember talking about, especially in the, I taught one class I taught was morality and, and trying to have, trying to get them to understand the life of people who grow up and live in poverty, poverty. It's very unfortunate. There's a lot of, there's racism there, but there's more than just racism. There's, there's a prejudice that's there in our country, uh, even just against poor people, right? I mean, our, our idea, our thought is, well, poor people are poor because they choose to be poor. They're poor because of whatever. And so in trying to educate my students about, well, what about people who grow up in poverty? Yes, some people can escape it. Some people can. Some people do, but they're very few in number. And you have people who grow up in poverty and what that's like and, and what their experiences are. And intellectually, they may realize this is America and they can do, you know, this is the land of opportunity, right? But in reality, they're carrying a lot of baggage, and a lot of pain and a lot of experience that tells them otherwise. And so they, you, we have to kind of keep that in mind, you know, be gentle for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Um, another recommendation she has here is pray before you comment, not God almighty enlighten these idiots through the workings of my keyboard, <laughs> but Lord, please bless Mr. Troll. Right. And I, and I, I, um, I, I, I believe in this a lot. I believe in this a lot. There's so many times that I, I have been upset with people. And I mean, I understand I'm at fault a lot of times too. I, I you know, I'm, I'm not, certainly not perfect. And I do a lot of things that are wrong. A lot of things that are uh, just, just not uh, for the best. Right. And so when someone makes me angry, <clears throat> I have tried, or, or, or especially people who continually make me angry. Uh, that's one of the things I try to do is just say, Lord, please bless so-and-so, please bless so-and-so. It's just to pray for them. I'm not, you know, trying to make a big deal out of it or anything in my own head. It's just, please bless them. And I have noticed that by praying for them, it does change me. It changes my heart and it helps me to be better, um, you know, more patient and, and charitable with these people, whoever they may be, when I'm in contact with them. And I think that's a helpful thing. Very helpful. So pray before you comment. Uh, fake it until you make it is one that she says here. She says it may be too hard to be civil for the sake of blindly pure Christian caritas or charity. So maybe just do it to make the next five seconds on earth more pleasant. (laughs) If you can't actually be a good person with your whole heart, the next best thing is to play one online, right? It's okay to be angry, to acknowledge to yourself that you're angry and then to speak as if you're not angry. It's pretty liberating, actually, she says. You know, occasionally the person who lashed out at you, expecting you to respond in kind, will collapse and apologize in the face of kindness. And even better, speaking like a decent person may actually engender decency within you. At the very least, you'll have refused to contribute to the overall horribleness of the world 
this one time. And that's important too. I, I was thinking, you know, uh, the whole fake it till you make it thing. Sometimes I, I for for years, for a long, long time, I thought that was bunk. I'm like that's just garbage. I mean, come on, really. I mean, we have to be authentic, right? I mean, we're supposed to be authentic. But what I have learned, and this may be just from experience and age, what I have learned is it's okay to be angry, to acknowledge to myself that I'm angry, and then to speak as if I am not angry. That's not being inauthentic. It's simply being mature. It's simply being a grown-up, you know, and I think we need more of that in the world today. I'd love to know what you think about this. I'm going to put a link in the show notes, by the way, to this article. I'd love to know what you think. Uh, You can find the article over at catholicfoodie.com, the link at least at catholicfoodie.com. I would love to know what you think. You can give me a call, leave me voice feedback at 985-635-4974, I'd love to hear from you. Play your feedback right here on the show. Thank you again for listening to the Catholic Foodie Show on Breadbox Media. I am your host, Jeff Young. We are out of time for today. So until next time, bon appetit.